Welcome to the Being Human UTU podcast, where Dr. Randy Jasmine and Dr. Jim Hindigas will discuss issues relative to the humanities and technology at Utah Tech University. And now your hosts for Being Human UTU podcast, Dr. Randy Jasmine and Dr. Jim Hindigas. Hello, and welcome to the Being Human Utah Tech podcast. We are happy to be starting season number two. We've got one year of experience behind us, and we're very anxious and excited about what the new year holds. We have a few additions and changes to our podcast, and we'll be talking about those. Um, we've talked about the topic of going once a month, Jim, and we have decided... Sure. <laughs> that's kind of, that's, that's almost exactly how the conversation went. Yeah, and I, we might regret it, but you know what? Let's just do it. Let's just do it. So we are going to be going once a month, and that's during the academic year. So four months in fall semester and then four months in the spring semester. So that's our plan for right now. And we actually have a guest speaker lined up for next month. We have Adam Dore, who's coming to talk um, about technology and humanities, uh, again, uh, similar to uh, the guest that we had last year, Scott Hartley. He's, he's coming in the same series, and he's going to talk about disruptions, technological disruptions in energy and transportation and food that are going to have great impact on climate change and things like that. So he'll be our guest. We don't know the exact date. His um, visit to Utah Tech will be Monday, or excuse me, Tuesday, September 20th, and he'll be giving his public um, lecture at four o'clock in the Zion Room. So we're looking forward to, to his visit. A couple of announcements that I'd like to make. I hinted last time, or didn't hint, that's an inaccurate word to use. I blatantly stated, I am the new coordinator of the Utah Tech Humanities Center, and that center is pending Board of Trustees approval, but we're, we're moving quick, pretty quickly to being an official center, and we've got a couple of events coming up, and I just want to name the event that we're going to be having next month, which is we're going to be having a digital humanities forum, and we're going to have SUU English professor Julie McCown speaking, and we're going to have contributions to that forum from our students in our professional um, in, our, in our professional writing and digital rhetoric master's program, talking about their experience with digital humanities. They're taking a digital humanities course, and in fact, I went and spoke to that class last night, and I said, "For this forum, come and talk about your experience with digital humanities." And I think the standard reaction was. Well, when we have some of those experiences, you know, we'll let you know by, by <laughs> October 7th, we should be having some of those experiences. So that's going to be on October 7th from 12 to 2, and that's going to be in the uh, Holland Centennial Common Room 325. So, uh, Jim, how was your summer, and what are some of the things you're looking forward to in the upcoming semester? Hmm. <laughs> My summer, I, you know, when I think about technology, I think about the fact that yeah, when you know when you're on your computer and you're getting work done and then you take a break and by that I mean you go and check your email or you go and check some scores or or you, you check something else on your computer screen and you realize that you haven't rested. That's kind of how I feel like my summer went. It just felt like I was always working even in times when I wasn't. And uh, I was really reflecting upon the fact that 
I didn't disconnect enough. Uh, and, and I think in other summers, I'm going to be really deliberate. As scary as it might be, I might leave my phone somewhere. If I'm around like a family and I know that I'll be around people to let, so they'll let me know there's a, a disaster going on in the world. So I'm, I'm covered with that. Uh, I might have to ad- abandon technology because I really felt it this summer. I just, I felt like I never really left campus this summer. And, um, you know, I, I was prepping for a summer course and then I taught the second portion. I know we've talked a little bit about this. There was just this lack of rest. I, I've, which is okay. I, in some ways, I feel like now I'm back and like, oh, well, this is my natural state, a semester. But there's a lack of rest this summer. But it's okay. I'm, it's not a bad thing. It's just the reality. Right. And so maybe that's one of our lessons for our first podcast of the second season is too much technology could be mm-hmm. a bad thing. Mm-hmm. You need to get your eyes off of technology sometimes. I'm As you were talking, I just realized, you know, I'm... I'm a little bit older, and I will say this. if I, I do the vast majority of my serious um, work online on a computer screen. My phone is necessary for my job. My phone is a very valuable thing to have. But I don't do much beyond checking news headlines, briefly checking news headlines and checking sports scores on my phone and using it as a phone because I'm, you know, of that generation, right? Mm -hmm. So I don't watch videos online. I don't do a lot of surfing the web online. So if I get away from my computer, I'm pretty firmly away from technology. So I might have, might not have to go into that same scary place you do when you don't have a phone. And, and, you know, it's amazing now for me, even that that's become the dream, right? In the old days you dream, Oh my gosh, I lost my wallet. What am I going to do? I don't have my wallet. Now I have dreams. Sometimes I lost my phone. What am I going to do? I don't have my phone. Mm -hmm. So (laughs) I didn't lose my phone over the summer or my wallet, but I definitely can understand where you're coming from in terms of technology. Well, I used to think, and there was a, this point when I said, oh, I'm only going to teach online in the summer because it allows me to go where I need to go. I'm not tied to a classroom during a period of time during the summer. You know, I can leave, and especially in St. George when we get some really hot weather, I it feels like an advantage to be able to, to, to leave the campus and yet I, I really did feel like, okay, if I was tied to a physical classroom and had all that learning experience mostly in the classroom and then, you know, I'd, we'd have to grade online. And uh, so I, I actually thought, well, maybe I should, should think about doing a face-to-face classroom in the summer. You know, this whole online learning thing made me feel like I was always checking my phone. I was always connecting with my laptop. I was always, you know, a student would email me every you know, I average it three or four times a day and I'd have to kind of take a break from dinner to respond to it. I shouldn't do, I should have boundaries, but I, (laughs) I didn't, but I was thinking about that. I was going, maybe I should go back to just doing that Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, summer routine with a, with a class. But I don't know. I still like being able to leave and, and taking off for vacation and, you know, having, being able to teach a course, but also not have to be tied to St. George. So a lot of thinking. Yeah, I can, I can understand. I'm in the, in the same boat, but you know, the summer's passed. And as we talked about in our summer podcast, 
uh, back in June, uh, back in July, we are now Utah Tech and we are full steam ahead with the Utah Tech mission. A lot of the things that we talked about last year are now in the infant stages of being put into into um, uh, into action. And I think that's something that we're going to talk a lot about in the coming year. One of the recurring segments that we want to introduce is a segment which is, again, connected to me in the Humanities Center a little bit, but it's going to be called Collaboration in the Classroom because we really are stressing, and at the, the College of Humanities and Social Sciences level, this is a, a really strong impetus, um, asking our faculty to collaborate with other faculty members, not just in our college, but also in colleges across campus. And, you know, I've mentioned in here collaborations that I have with Lish Harris, who's a, a um, criminal justice professor on an assignment in my English 2010 class. But I'm also seeking other collaborations that might work with maybe professors who teach outside of the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. And so we'll have a recurring segment in which we kind of update some of the things that maybe we're doing, but also some of the things that we hear our colleagues doing. And maybe we'll have some guests um, who are, in fact, doing some of these kinds of collaborations. So that's going to be something that, we, that we'll do on a fairly regular basis. We won't promise it every single month, but that's something that we're going to do. But we'll still have regular, longer conversational segments like we're going to have today. And the first one, the first thing I think, Jim, you want to talk to us about a little bit is generational tech literacy and how dealing with your students really, it's really important to to think about questions that arise under that category of generational tech literacy. I have been thinking about this a lot in the past several years. Uh, so I'm 43, <laughs> and um, I'm in that place. I think in my 30s, I might have fooled myself into thinking that I could connect with 20-year-old students. Oh, I know what they're up to. But now I'm just completely aware that I am of a different generation than them and that I have a, in fact I, it seems more like the the people that I understand are older than me as far as that that generation and, um, and, and I'll give you an example something we've talked about quite a bit is this concept of of hard data storage this idea that when I talk to younger generations they have a more, uh, a viewpoint that that an item or a piece or a text isn't doesn't necessarily need to be stored somewhere. It it just lives in the ether. <laughs> <laughs> and so when I tell somebody, oh yeah, I want to have um, a a file folder filled with items, or I even want files to be put on a some kind of hard disk that seems like more and more a foreign concept for my students. They, they think of things being stored in the cloud or they think of things being present in the moment and then they disappear. I think about the fact that Snapchat does not appeal to me whatsoever because I just think, why wouldn't I keep that around? They can see the value in just presenting something and then it just disappearing. Mm -hmm. And so I, I even think as a teacher, and if I'm teaching about technology and I'm thinking, what does your portfolio look like? What, what does your, the things that you create, what does that look like? And I might get blank stares going, well, we're right now, like what, I'm, I'm not, I'm not storing all the things that I'm doing. I'm 
living sort of in the present. <laughs> uh, I, I think about myself professionally, everything that comes across my email or in a communication, I tend to put somewhere and I store it because I think about this is part of my tenure portfolio. This is part of my promotion portfolio. I need to store this away. And it's sometimes I get strange looks from students because they don't think of data storage in that same kind of way. And and so that's a specific example to, to bring up in with what we're talking about it, is that sometimes that worldview in, in connecting with technology, it's not just dealing with the technology itself. It's how you're approaching the technology. We're, we're not talking. I might think, oh, yeah, yeah, I, I use texting in this particular way and they use texting in a completely different way that I can't comprehend, am I able to teach a, a concept where we can find common ground? And that's what I think about is I, I always think, okay, well, maybe I'll find some theorist from the 20th century probably that can unite your 21st century understanding and then my late 20th century understanding that, that it, you know, We'll both come together with, you know, some kind of deconstruction theorist. But I, I fear that our, our different lenses of how we approach technology are so different that are, is there learning happening or they're just, you know, checking the box to, to, to learn in my class. So that's just something I've been thinking a lot about. I don't know if you've had experiences generationally where there's disconnections or... Yeah, I mean, as a teacher, that happens a lot, and it can be smaller things, but it can also be larger things, and I, and I really like your comment about the portfolio, and if you remember, at different times at this institution, we've talked about investing in software that allows students to create professional portfolios of their work as they pass through, and I think over the years, the cost uh, and maintenance of such technology has been prohibitive for us to do that, but you know, if you're going to go out into the workforce and you're going to apply for jobs, immediately people are going to want to see portfolio a portfolio of your work. And so you're going to want to make sure that that's stored in a reliable way. You know, my, my uh, interaction with that is really maybe on a smaller scale, and that is students who, who send me documents and have no don't think twice about sending me a Google Doc. And, you know, if they're not paying particular attention, maybe they send me a Google Doc, which is an assignment. They send it by the due date, and I sit down to grade it, and all of a sudden I need permission from them to get into that document. And I say, well, could you save that? You know, it maybe even goes beyond data storage where I say, could you save this as a docx file or save this as a PDF? Again, maybe generationally showing my age, and like you say, I get those blank stares, you know, and we fear probably, or at least I do, we're on the verge, we're on the verge of the progressive commercial, right? And, and mocking the people who <laughs> copy the internet. You don't need to copy the internet. Yeah. It's there. Why do you need to copy it? But at the same time, you know, it can be a big thing. Like one of the big projects I have in my composition class is an in-class presentation. And I'm always encouraging them to make sure that on the day that you're to present, you have quick access to it. If you want to, you know, email it to me, um, I'll, I'll be happy to, to open it up in class um, for you. But, 
inevitably there will be a handful of students every semester that will it will take them 15 minutes to get access to their Google account, to get into the cloud, to actually get that presentation, which is a big portion of their grade, um, off the cloud and onto the screen for the class. And, you know, I'm sitting thinking to myself, if I'm grading them, not just on the content, but also the presentation, the confidence, the clarity, you know, is this lack of preparation of having the presentation right there ready to go at the time that they're scheduled, I should be counting that as part of their grade because, you know, one of the biggest reasons why I do that assignment is to get them ready for something similar to a job interview. And if you show up at a job interview and it takes you 20 minutes to get started, 20 minutes before you can answer the first question in a job interview or present your portfolio to those interviewing you in a, in a job interview scenario, that seems that seems counterproductive and it seems damaging to them going out into the workforce. Yeah. I, and, and what you're saying, it, it made me think of the, the fact that it, I mean, I really do. I, I see those complications for them and what they would encounter. And then I also turn it back around and say, well, is this a different world? Did I learn it in a different way? And am I not helping them? But then I'm like, but wait a minute. <laughs> this is this is professionalism. This is what communication looks like. But I, I, you and I both learned, I think, in a different technological environment, and we didn't have these complications. We didn't. I, I mean, I think the the most. Uh, now I don't know what your experience is, but I'm going to make the assumption that you were just hunting around campus or your your room to make sure that there was a printer available so you could print out your paper. You know, that was the biggest technology. And then you submitted your paper in class. For, for me, I mean, a, a large portion, especially my undergraduate, I mean, I don't think I even submitted a digital paper in my undergraduate. That's showing my age. Wow. Um, in late, late 90s, you know, at Long Beach State, uh, I don't think I submitted a digital paper. And so I think for them, when their submissions aren't even considering how the the professor will um, get it. I, I even think with that a particular example, you know, do they just assume that we just need to figure out how to get to the document? That's all. That's on us. <laughs> I don't. I don't. Maybe. Know. Maybe. I. I don't know. It. it I, I think about these things a lot because I, I. My initial reaction is they need to learn this process. This is part of their learning process. But then there's this other part of me that thinks, is this my learning process as a professor to learn the technology? And am I slow enough to learn that I'm not helping them? <laughs> you know, if I'm, and I, sometimes I think about it, like speaking of pro progressive commercials, you know, you think about, I, I think about the older professors in my experience that we knew that they were the ones that refused to use digital technology in their classroom. And <laughs> and I was like, oh, gosh, and like I, I'm on the cutting edge of technology, but they refuse to use the Internet. And now I understand that they were just using what was familiar to them and they didn't want to change. But we're asked to change and adapt to these different literacies. And sometimes I struggle with that adaptation. <laughs> yeah, I do. I do, too. And uh, yeah, I think that's where we live. We live on that border now. And we have to be very careful that we 
we do what is best for our students, but we also do what is most helpful in, in making them um, responsible uh, digital citizens as well. Because like I said, when they get out into the workforce, a lot of that material is going to be necessary to be presented in a very professional way. All right. Um, moving along, there was an article that you shared with me that I found very interesting. And I wanted to talk about it a little bit here. It's the most regretted and lowest paying college majors um, by Andrew Van Dam in the Washington Post. And I was really taken by this article because it was, I went kind of back and forth where here's my overall take on it. He claims that, okay, people who are in the humanities have the biggest major regret. Not buyer's remorse, but major's remorse. The biggest major's, major remorse falls in the humanities. And he talks about history, he talks about English, and the lowest is in engineering and in the STEM fields. And he kind of hints at the fact, well, it's not all financial. But when you read through the article, he doesn't offer many reasons why they have regret that aren't financial. Mm -hmm. The financial part of it seems to be pretty, pretty big. And so I was taken by that. The two people that he, he does interview, I think, do a good job of presenting kind of a, a complex view of what's going on out there. And the, the people he interviews are, looking at my notes here, Ben Schmidt, who is a historian and a digital humanist, and Quinn Dombrowski at Stanford, who um, she makes it very clear, you know, she often has students who are doing digital humanities projects. They both talk a, a, along the lines of what we heard, um, what we heard um, all last year mm -hmm. uh, about this idea of the com combining humanities and technology. Also suggesting that the critical thinking skills that you gain in a humanities type degree help you maybe with a new job down the road, help you to ask the important questions in whatever um, discipline or excuse me, not discipline, but whatever field you go into right along the lines of what Hartley was saying. But there was this um, overriding negative taste in the mouth that was left for someone who is reading this um, article in the Washington Post who's in the humanities like we are. It, it is, I mean, it, it does, we have a recurring theme and this is our, this is a, a recurring discussion that we have about the value of humanities in our world. And when just even the title of it, it, it makes you, for me, it makes my shoulders slump and I think, oh, here's another situation in which we have to prove our value. Here's another situation in which this there's a megaphone. I mean, the irony sometimes I think when when media produces these sort of articles, you're thinking the guy who wrote this. I don't think he got a a STEM degree. <laughs> I mean, like a, part of me thinks I, I feel like the Washington Post should be really kind of touting the humanities to try and you know stay afloat. But that's that's an aside. Uh, what what I would say is that. You know, in these situations, it does leave a sour taste in your mouth because for me, I think deep down, I don't know if the burden falls on the university or where the burden falls to explain to the student and, and majors what the value of a college degree is. I, I think 
the messaging that I, I think a lot of that I've heard, especially even in first year experience, is that it, yes, it's important that you choose a major that you can thrive within, but it's also just important to get that degree. That if you, you know, if you major in history and then you graduate and then you think to yourself, maybe I should have got a degree in psychology, then that's proof that you're a lifelong learner and maybe you should try to keep furthering your 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 education through psychology, but also you probably could still land a job with a history degree in a, a counseling situation. You might need to get some certification and all that, but, but we talk about the fact that that degree is foundational and shows that you can be a strong learner. And yet you, you see messages like this that go, you know what, you need to pick the right major, otherwise you're doomed. <laughs> you're like you have to tell an 18 year old if you don't pick the right major. And I see this with first year experience and, and reading this article, like I can see the anxiety that an 18 year old would have. They'd be so terrified um, if they were to, they feel like they're going to pick the wrong major. Their life is ruined. They can feel that way, but I think um, it's not. <laughs> I think a big part of, of what Van Dam's article covered was the financial insecurity. He talked about the Great Recession and he talked about COVID and how those financial pressures lead to that kind of reaction. If I pick the wrong major, my life is ruined. But then when we get into some of the content, particularly when he's interviewing Schmidt and Dombrowski, the idea comes out again of the value of the humanity. So a very interesting read, um, even if we don't agree with everything that was there. And even if we feel that maybe this kind of uh, panic journalism isn't always the most valuable thing for people to read. And I wouldn't even call it panic journalism. I think that, I think the panic was in the headline, Yeah, you know, and if you read the article, it's a lot less mm-hmm. panic filled, but you know, there's it, the headline, there's it, the clickbait. And I mean, as much as I, I started saying about how it makes my, shoulder slump and I'm, I'm not enthusiastic to further de- defend the humanities. I also think it is no, it's okay. I, I think we can further defend the fact I, I, that, that our discipline is valuable. And at the same time that students should be o- aware that the skills that they would get from the humanities are valuable in the world. I, I think what, what, I want these these articles to sort of talk about is a larger sense that just like Hartley talked about is that we need a world filled with lots of different people with lots of different skill sets. And when we are having students concerned about whether they're going to make a financial, a good financial decision by choosing a major, they're not necessarily thinking about the world and how we need philosophers and scientists. And so I'm not, I always think in my mind, it's a, it's a conviction to me to just further help those students to um, counsel them through their majors. Because there is a part of me in the end that if, there, if regret is actual reality for students when they graduate, that somebody did not help them along the way understand what their degree meant or, or how they, you know, they just saw it as, as a dollar sign. And, oh, I graduate now. This is all I'm going to make. And the, the, article clearly talked about the fact that that that's not always the case that there are humanities graduates that have 
make a large income. It just depends on what they go into in society. Yeah, yeah, definitely. A more complex article than the, than the headline um, suggests. All right. Well, that's been uh, a great discussion. We've had some great discussion on a couple of different topics. Um, I look forward to um, talking with Adam Doerr next month. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Um, and look out for us next month where we will have our special guest who will be a part of the CHAS, uh, the Utah Tech College of Humanities and Social Sciences Humanities and Technology Series. This has been the Being Human UTU podcast with Dr. Randy Jasmine and Dr. Jim Hindigas. Please follow and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. From Utah Tech University, this is the Being Human UTU podcast.